The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello, I'm Harry DeKettville, and in this episode six of the Technology Intelligence Podcast, we're going to explore the future of food. In coming decades, our ability to meet global food demand will become increasingly problematic due to a few factors. Firstly, obviously, global population is expanding massively. Some estimates suggest it'll top 9 billion by 2050. That's a lot of mouths to feed. And secondly, eating habits are shifting, with an increasingly large segment of the world's population developing a taste for the protein-rich red and white meats which we in the Western world have consumed and enjoyed in our diets for years. Meats, and red meat in particular, are resource-intensive and inefficient to rear, requiring huge amounts of water and land. And so wider consumption of these types of foods places further strain on the planet's abilities to meet demand. As we'll be hearing from the entrepreneurs innovating within this sector, a lot is already being done with technology to address the issue of food security whether it's improving the efficiency of agriculture through the use of artificial intelligence, with satellite and drone imaging, or with the development of more environmentally friendly alternatives to reared meat, such as cultured or clean meats grown not on the field, but in the laboratory. Now, there's so much to discuss, but before we dig into the looming food issues of the future, let's begin with something a little closer to home, on your doorstep in fact, the logistical challenges of grocery and food delivery. And who better to speak with but a world-leading, technology-focused British company which is striving for efficiency wherever they can find it. My name's Paul Clark. I'm Chief Technology Officer at Ocado. We're an unusual fusion of a retail business and a technology business, and then we're in the process of of also becoming a platform business. And I suppose what's unusual about us is that we build almost all of the technology that powers our end-to-end e-commerce fulfillment and logistics platform ourselves. So we have a disproportionately large engineering uh, and technology division, uh, Ocado Technology. So what's the aim for Ocado vis-a-vis technology? Our aim is to make the whole process of online grocery, retail and delivery as simple and convenient as possible for our customers. But but the way that we do that is through a huge amount of technology uh, and automation. And that's been our vision right from day one, because uh, online grocery is, is very different from other kinds of online retail. Of course, it's a low margin business. People are buying food every week and often ordering, uh, in our case, typically 50 items. So the whole process has to be very low friction and very convenient to allow customers to place that order in just a few minutes. We're providing a 50,000 item uh, range of groceries, which is larger than any UK supermarket range. And there are lots of different form factors of the items, and you have to be careful about how they're packed. You know, if you put a large packet of soap powder on top of a punnet of strawberries, you're going to get a smoothie, and that's probably not what the customer had in mind. Uh, There are all sorts of food tech segregation rules. So to do this whole end-to-end process scalably and profitably, the only way to do it is with automation. And and as I say, that was our vision right uh, from day one. Ocado has various warehouses across the UK where automated crates whiz around with personal shoppers collecting and dropping items into them, achieving improved efficiency and speed of fulfilment. These are the largest and most advanced warehouses of their kind, and yet Ocado has already disrupted its own innovation with a second generation of warehouse technology which uses not humans but swarms of robots. These robots live in a two-dimensional world that's a bit like a huge chessboard. So they live on the chessboard, and under every single chess square, 
there is a stack of, of bins containing groceries. And the robots are a bit like rooks. They can go in the X direction or the Y direction at any one time. And they can stop on a chess square and they lower a grab, a bit like a fairground grab, but one that actually picks something up. And they bring a bin uh, from the top of the stack up into the body of the robot. And then they can move to another square and drop it off onto another stack. And, of course, if that's all they could do, they would get very bored and frustrated. So they also can bring the bins to machines positioned around the edge of the grid, like a pick station where a human or indeed another kind of robot can pick items from a bin into a customer order or a decant station where we pick items coming in from suppliers into bins and then the robots put them away. So it's, it's like an enormous three-dimensional grid of groceries. We call it a hive. And why I say they're not whizzing around the floor is the hive, if you like, and the robots on top of them go to within 60 centimetres of the roof beam. So we're literally filling these sheds to the rafters with groceries we can sell rather than air. And that's one of the other unique properties of this technology. So how does this hive approach improve productivity within the warehouses? We take the total throughput of a warehouse and we divide it by everybody that's working in it. And we've been kind of moving from figures of maybe sort of 150, 160 units per hour in our conventional warehouses up to over 220 per hour in the big sister of the Andover warehouse, which goes live in a few months in Erith in southeast London. So it's a kind of a journey of constantly evolving the technology, and we're not going to stop there. You know, we're always looking for the next thing that we can automate. That process of self-disruption is something you have to keep at and, you know, never be complacent that you've uh, you've kind of got good enough. We We obsess about the holes in the Swiss cheese, so to speak. We have uh, no shortage of ideas of how to uh, make things better and faster and more efficient. And it's just a question of uh, what we tackle next. Automation has been crucial for Ocado and its strategy up to today. But what does Paul think the fundamental technology will be for the company in coming years? From our point of view, artificial intelligence is the one to rule them all when it comes to the set of disruptive technologies that power our business. And we already make extensive use of machine learning across our platform, but really we just think we're getting started. You know, there's all sorts of things we can do with that technology to make the service that we provide our customers better and better. We've heard a lot about the arrival of AI through the Tech Intelligence podcast. It's been used widely, but Paul feels Ocado are implementing it in unique ways. People talk a lot about voice and vision systems and things like that, but maybe one that's peculiar to us. In our conventional warehouses, we have you know, engineers looking at screens, keeping everything healthy and and spotting problems, hopefully before they become a problem when, you know, perhaps something needs servicing or so forth, uh, as well as the predictive maintenance that we do. But in our new warehouses, where you have swarms of thousands of robots flying around, there's no way you can do that with people staring at screens. So, you know, all of the kind of the data from those robots goes up to the cloud. And there, you know, we're building machine learning based sort of analytics to look after those swarms. It's very much like building the equivalent of a healthcare system that sits in the cloud that can look at an individual robot and say, you know, that robot, that its battery pack looks like it's kind of, you know, it needs servicing, bring it in, or it's not, you know, accelerating or decelerating uh, as fast as it used to do. And of course, the fantastic thing in a swarm is that you can take any one member out and any of the others can take its place. They're all the same. So this kind of robotic healthcare system running in the cloud 
is what's going to allow us not only to look after one of these warehouses, but we're going to be building you know, many of these around the world, both for ourselves and for our Acado Smart Platform customers. And so it's really important that whatever we do now is very scalable and is appropriate to that future where we have uh, you know, lots and lots of these warehouses dotted around the world. Acado is even developing a humanoid robot called Second Hand, which has human-like hand grippers, with the idea that one day these robots might be able to help humans in Ocado warehouses of the future. It has vision systems, it has, uh, it's controlled by artificial intelligence, and it, it learns by watching human engineers at work and then works out how to collaborate with them. And once again, that might appear to be something uh, quite crazy for a company like Ocado to be building, but the reason that's so important is it's going to teach us a huge amount that will have spin-off applications in other areas um, of our business along the way. But also, if you're going to build as many of these warehouses as we intend to, then having systems like that that can help not only automate the maintenance of those facilities, but maybe also one day help automate the construction of them in the first place, really is important. So once again, that's part of that sort of scalability vision that we have. It's staggering to think that a company that you and I, the consumer, think of as in the grocery business is actually developing such cutting-edge technology itself. Looking to the future, is the plan to stick with this delivery method we're familiar with, or is Ocado thinking about other options for the so-called last mile to get stuff to your door? One of the things that's made us successful is the fact that we will deliver a 50-item order you know, to your kitchen table in a one-hour slot. And uh, we're certainly not going to stop doing that. But you know, maybe if you suddenly get off a plane at 3 o'clock in the morning and decide you, you, know, you want to have something to eat or you uh, come off shift in the middle of the night and you want to have a, a top-up shop rather than have to go and try and find a shop that's open at that time, there you might be happy to go to the curb to pick up items from a, an autonomous delivery vehicle or indeed in in other territories where we offer our Cardo Smart platform to other large bricks and mortar grocery retailers there things like click and collect may be important so it it really is about choice it's not about any one of those taking over from the others it's about just allowing different customers at different times to pick which kind of delivery format applies and you know people often ask us about drones you know, drone technology is, is extremely exciting and interesting, and indeed we use drones for surveying, and I'm sure we'll be using them for things like automated maintenance too. But it's going to be a while before drones are carrying 35 kilograms of groceries over your head. You know, there are lots of challenges in terms of the drone technology itself and battery technologies, but also safety and legislation. And, you know, people need to do things like build uh, automated air traffic control corridors for drones. So it's definitely a technology that we are keeping uh, an ion and we're using for purposes that we think are appropriate, but it's going to be a while before we see drones delivering uh, large uh, grocery orders. And as Paul Clark said, there's a load of exciting tech being used to get food to your door efficiently. But of course, a huge amount of work goes into producing the food in the first place. Next, to get an idea of the historical context as well as current food challenges, I'm heading off to the Royal Society to meet with a leading expert who has spent much of his academic career studying precisely this topic. So my name's uh, Charles Godfrey. By background, I'm a biologist. and I'm currently director of the Oxford Martin School at the University of Oxford. 
Our mission is to try and bring together parts of the university to address major questions of the 21st century, climate change, equity, new economic thinking, but also food. So we have a program called the uh, Oxford Martin Program on the Future of Food, and we're really interested in different trends and what might happen in the future, how we can feed what will be nearly 10 billion people by mid-century. Has farming and the way we produce food changed in the last 100 years? Farming has changed. My background is as a population biologist, and one of the founders of population biology, also the founder of economics, is the famous Thomas Malthus, who at the end of the 18th century predicted famine and pretty much the breakdown of civilization in the early decades of the 19th century. And this didn't happen. It didn't happen because the Industrial Revolution, and the Industrial Revolution did very many complex things, but it, it essentially increased productivity. And so we got out of that first what might be called a Malthusian scare. And then if you go back sort of much more recently into the 1960s and the 1970s, the era of the beginning of the acceleration of population growth, then you had authors such as Paul Ehrlich, who wrote The Population Bomb, who was claiming that because of famine and food, that there would be the collapse of civilization by the end of the 20th century. And this didn't happen. It didn't happen because of what was then called the Green Revolution. So technical advances in the genetics of crops meant we could increase yields both to feed ourselves and to feed animals. Norman Borg, the famous plant breeder who dwarfed uh, wheat and led the way in this, uh, probably saved more people's lives than anyone else who's lived in the last 50 years. And actually, a lot of that grain, the sort of green revolution, was used to feed cattle as well. So it also had a major effect on, on livestock. And I think we're going through what might be called the third era of Malthusian pessimism at the moment. In 2008 and 2010, we had a food price shock. So food prices went up. Food then went back up the, uh, the political agenda. And what are the challenges we're facing in the future? Well, I think you can divide them into supply and demand. On the demand side, there are going to be more people, although the rate of population growth is decelerating, which is a good thing. But people are going to be wealthier, which is also a good thing. But wealthier people demand better diets. And in particular, they demand diets rich in the type of food that requires a lot of resource to produce, of which meat is one. On the other side, on the supply side, we're going to see increasing competition for the resources we need to produce food. Land, of course, but also water. Water is, I think, one of the scariest things. And all this within the context of climate change. We know the climate is going to become more variable. We know it's going to be increasingly challenging for agriculture. Charles Godfrey. We'll be hearing more from Charles before the end of the episode, but next time heading back to the Telegraph offices to speak with Will Wells, CEO of Hummingbird, a company looking to help farmers improve yields and cut costs through the use of technology. We're an artificial intelligence business uh, for farming. So we use imagery from drones and robots and satellites to help farmers see problems in their crops that can't always be detected with the human eye. We're looking for things like disease, weeds and pests at an early stage. And then through maps, which we then deliver to farmers on their smartphones, which can be exported into a, any farm machinery, we help farmers target those problems so that they don't overspray chemicals. So it's about what goes into the ground and the subsequent impact on the environment and on the, the food. 
we look at a spectral band called infrared, and that allows us to pick up small signs of biotic stress at a leaf level. So, for example, if a leaf doesn't have a high chlorophyll content, that will be picked up in the imagery. So it's an early warning system. It's, a, it's like an MRI scan, but for crops. Disease, like with human bodies, will often lie latent in crops and the pressure will build up. And for the first two to three weeks, that can be invisible to the human eye. But if you find it early, you can treat it. And by not spraying all of your crops just for the sake of it, you don't also encounter long-term problems such as resistance and, and, and so forth. So logistics-wise, is there a preferred method for capturing these images? We're an imagery analytics business, and whether we use a drone, a robot, or a, or a satellite or a plane, it was, we're quite agnostic. We would prefer farmers to fly themselves, fly a drone over their fields, upload the imagery. We combine that with satellite images, um, and it's back onto a smartphone or a desktop in under about six hours now. But the reality is that many farmers don't have access to this drone technology or the pilots required to fly them. And so many of Hummingbird's clients are subscribers who rely on Will and his team to provide them as part of the service, visiting the farm several times a season to capture images at the key decision-making moments of the farming year. As you might imagine, pilots are expensive and a current frustration for Will is that drones at the moment can't be flown remotely or indeed fly themselves autonomously. The technology is there beyond visual line of sight, safe, air traffic controlled, kind of autonomous flying vehicles is something that the military have been using for for decades. It's something that even in the US you're allowed to do. The UK is very far behind. So we're working quite closely on that. And I see that as a matter of when rather than if. Despite the costs, once the images have been captured, what are the benefits of having this analysis done? You are looking at 10 to 20% incremental sort of margin gains if you find problems that you know, otherwise were undetected and you can have a big impact on chemical decision-making. From the air, you can also see huge kind of issues that by normal crop walking are just invisible. Farming is all about being able to demonstrate that what you do actually adds value. So it's about showing that we gave you that map on that date and it helped you do this differently and, and this was the saving because goodwill only gets you so far with farming. We have a slight chicken and egg scenario with, with the machine learning because the quantity of the data set itself drives the performance of, of, of lots of our algorithms. So you know, we're, not, we're not one of those businesses that says, give me all your data and I'm going to give it back to you in a, in a sort of rejumbled format and, and that's the value. But, but we will increase the accuracy from 80% to 90% you know, if we have another 1,000 customers. So there's potential for this technology to become hugely beneficial, both to small-scale and large-scale farmers who don't even have to be particularly tech-savvy. In future, they might be able to discover problems at the leaf level, not by walking fields, but on their smartphone. Additionally, there are other more nuanced ways in which the technology can be used. It's about traceability and this um, notion of being able to measure what's gone into the ground, what goes into the food that's on your plate. And... And, and, and a lot of, you know, whether you're a neighbour of a farmer, you may want to know what, what's going on in the fields that runs off into your garden and that your children play around in. I think that we're only really waking up to, to this issue of traceability and really understanding what happens. And environmental stewardship is part of this. You don't speak to any farmers that aren't interested in the environment, that don't care about the food chain. So this theme of stewardship, which is obviously becoming more and more important, especially as we... We, we approach kind of a junction as well where all the regulatory and sort of subsidy environments will, will no doubt change. But it's about kind of how can technology play 
an active role in that and not a sort of passive passive role and how can it be a kind of vehicle for change and also if people if, if, if environmental stewardship's the way forward then I, my, my view is that farmers should be rewarded for anything that they do that can demonstrate that and can measure it. It's obviously early days in the uptake of this technology. We'll reckon there are probably 5 million farmers across Europe, with only 10 or 20,000 of them using this kind of remote imaging technology that his company offers. And the business model really is yet to be defined. If you're providing a map of a potato field to a potato farmer, maybe you're predicting yield or doing an irrigation schedule, or maybe you're looking at disease. Is that map um, meant for the farmer, or is it meant for McCain, or is it meant for the person that advises the farmer? And there are all sorts of people on a per hectare basis that are interested in, in farming, and it could be big food, or it could be, could be the food retailer. The business model is still quite in its infancy, so how that develops and who pays for what, I think, is probably the big barrier. If consumers sort of vote for this with their wallets, I think that would just push everything forward a a huge amount. This requires consumers actively to care about whether something is produced responsibly, to care about how many chemicals and fertilisers are used to grow a particular crop. Well, we're currently seeing a major shift in public opinion around the use of plastics. Why can't something similar happen with food? If it does, then public opinion itself might force a majority of farmers to adopt new methods of monitoring and analysis, which of course Will's technologies allow for. If such a watershed moment were to happen, does Will think that the use of chemicals in farming could go the way of plastics? I think that's here to stay, but I think the way in which we use chemicals can be improved. I think that there's a lot to learn from human medicine and immunotherapy versus chemotherapy is is quite a good metaphor for, for, for what we're trying to do. It's all about precision. It's all about precision. And it's all about kind of keeping that tool in your toolbox for if you really need it, because resistance is huge. Resistance of bugs to, to, to sprays. Exactly. And if you use chemicals and you overspray crops year in, year out, when you actually do get the problem, the efficiency of, of that chemical is massively reduced. Will Wells... Next, we're going to jump on Skype to speak with Mark Post, a Dutch scientist currently in China on a business trip. Mark works on the development of cultured meats, that's meat grown in the laboratory, in the hope that in the future his approach will provide an affordable, more sustainable alternative to traditional meat farming. I am a professor of physiology at Maastricht University um, and we do tissue engineering specifically Uh, culturing meat from stem cells and we presented the first stem cell hamburger ever uh, in London in 2013 which we're now trying to commercialize with a company called Moza Meat of which I am the uh, chief scientific officer. How is cultured meat actually made? We start with taking a biopsy from a cow and a small piece of muscle let's say one centimeter long one millimeter in, in diameter that has a couple of hundred of these stem cells you let the stem cells grow out and let them expand until you have trillions of cells. Then you take them in packages of one and a half million and put them in a uh, temporary gel to keep them together and put them in a ring so that they can, when they start contracting, they feel the tension. And that um, they do for about three weeks. And then after three weeks, they are muscle fiber that under a microscope um, looks exactly the same as a muscle fiber from a steak that you get from uh, Tesco. Um, 
And then uh, you put those 10,000 muscle fibers together in a patty and then you have the hamburger. And what's happened since the first cultured burger was presented to the world in 2013? It was at that time you could say we I guess we were a little bit early in presenting this because we we knew that the product was at that point not scalable and not sustainable. So we had to change quite a bit of the technology to make it scalable and sustainable. Um and, and now we are advanced, I think, far enough to start thinking about um, scaling up the process and industrialization uh, of the process. How soon might we see a cultured meat product on the shelves in our supermarkets? We think we have a product on the market in about three years. Uh, that has to do with that we actually have to go through the scaling and we have to get regulatory approval from EFSA in Europe and from the FDA or USDA in the US. And that takes also about a year and a half. So three years seems like a reasonable time. And we think we can manage that. And other companies in the same field think sort of likewise. It will, at, in three years, likely still be a somewhat expensive product. Uh, think 10 uh, pounds for a hamburger. So that's not supermarket material. That's more restaurants and specialty stores and things like that. If you want to move it to the supermarket, it has to be very similar in price to regular meat. Maybe that happens in three years, but I doubt it, to be honest. It will probably take a couple of uh, extra years for that to happen. And can different kinds of meat be produced using this method? If we get to the market in three years from now, it will be with a hamburger, so with minced meat. Minced meat is relatively easy to make. It's another thing to make a filet mignon or a, a ribeye. For that, you need to have additional technology that uh, is also developed in the medical field for medical purposes, but um, not for food yet. So we have to develop that, and that will also take a longer time, and it's difficult to predict at this point how long. Well, it's all very well to talk about cultured meat, but what does it actually taste like? From a composition point of view, it's the same. So it, it tastes pretty much the same, and that's what the reviewers at that time in 2013 also said, well, yeah, this is meat. It was still dry because at that time we didn't have fat tissue in it, Currently, we're also culturing fat tissue, which sounds like a little bit weird to do, but that needs to be done for taste and for mouthfeel. So currently, we're doing that to complement the tissue. Presumably, this will have a huge impact on the way we rear livestock in the future. Farming, with all sort of its benefits and the historic value in feeding us, is not very efficient, especially not livestock farming and especially not cattle farming. It's very inefficient. We lose a lot of resources by having cows sort of as an intermediate in our food chain. And so this process promises to be much more efficient, uh, maybe even as efficient as a chicken or a fish. And that will save a lot of resources, resources in terms of land, water, and probably also energy, although there is some debate um, among uh, people who have sort of calculated this, what the amount of energy is going to be. We are not quite sure yet. The important thing is that that energy that we will use will not be associated with too much CO2 emission or methane emission, as cows do, because um, you can produce it in an in a environmentally friendly way. So will cultured meat bring an end to the days when we raise and then kill animals for their meat? Animal welfare is not my first priority. It's mostly food security and, and environment. But I, I do think that our ethics around uh, keeping animals and, and using animals for our purposes is changing and will change uh, further to the state that we will look back and say, well, this was actually weird and somewhat barbaric that we did that. Mark Post of Mosa Meat. 
So we've heard from our three entrepreneurs, each of whom is looking to change the way food works through technology, in their various niches, of course. But will this be enough to avert a future food crisis? Let's return to Charles Godfrey of the Oxford Martin Programme on the Future of Food, who we heard from earlier in the show, to find out. I think it's impossible to feed a population of 9 to 10 billion people with the rates of meat consumption that we enjoy in the rich world today. I think that to address this challenge, we have to do things both on the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side, I think that we as a global population need to eat less meat. And essentially, that's us in the rich world eating less meat. And I think it's fascinating, the trend towards increasing vegetarianism and veganism and flexitarianism, meat-free Mondays and things in the rich world. So the amount of meat being consumed in Europe is beginning to go down slightly. I think if we look on the supply side, there are things we have to do there. So I think we have to have a shift from the most resource-intensive types of meat to the less resource-intensive types of meat. An example of the latter is chicken. So chicken is much more efficient to produce than beef, less efficient than obviously plants. And what of cultured meat? I think this is really exciting. I think that one has to really challenge work in this area and say, is it actually as sustainable as producing livestock, especially chicken, at the moment? And this is sort of rather boring technological things, you know, counting the amount of greenhouse gases produced, counting the energy, measuring the energy, uh, measuring the amount of water. On the other hand, we see some meat and dairy substitutes being produced from plants. And I think, as an omnivore myself, I found that until recently, many of the substitutes do not taste like the real thing. And I have been immensely impressed by some of the new technologies coming through on both on dairy and meat, which are getting nearer and nearer to giving you the taste. I think they use the word mouthfeel, a rather odd term, of real meat. And burgers are easier to do than a steak or something like that, yes, because they're to a certain extent processed. But sort of burgers which sort of look as if they bleed, but it's not blood, it's beetroot juice or something like that, are, I think, really quite interesting and exciting in this area. Again, you have to ask the tough question, how sustainable is this? Will this be a middle-class niche? Is it scalable up? Science is uh, advancing very fast. But to me, it's almost what will the social science be? Will we take one of these new inventions and think it's yuck? Or will we think this is something that can really do a lot for the planet? So, for example, even some of the technologies which are based on plants, which aren't sort of scary lab-grown meat, but they, they can be characterized as ultra-processed. So you could imagine society saying, we hate ultra-processed food. It's got to be, in some sense, pure, however we define it. And then it goes one way. Or one could say, well, these uh, meat substitutes based on, on vegetables, on plants, could be a great way of trying to stop cutting down rainforest. And as Charles explains, finding alternatives to traditional livestock farming could reap massive rewards. The single greatest pressure on land is agriculture. And if one looks in particular at the tropical rainforests, which uh, lock up so much carbon and which would be a disaster to cut down and that carbon go into the atmosphere, then the two biggest drivers of deforestation are palm oil, especially in Asia, and livestock, especially in South America. So we could potentially do 
a great deal of good by reducing the pressure on land conversion in South America were we able to, to do that. And again, the only caveat I'd make is you want to make certain that the substitute is also good for the environment. If it turns out that you have to put in so much energy that you have to uh, burn fossil fuels to do it, then it's an own goal. And there have been own goals in the past in this general area. In the case of Mosa meat, assuming cultured meat is indeed scalable and can taste as good as traditional meat, then the issue of energy required needs to be resolved once and for all. And what does Charles think of the remote sensing which Hummingbird is developing? To me, one of the major challenges is that we should produce food more efficiently from our current agricultural footprint. I quite like the term sustainable intensification. Other people don't like it. It has nasty connotations. But I think we have to produce more food from our current agricultural footprint with less effects on the environment. And getting the water, getting the fertilizer, getting any pest control chemicals to exactly where they're needed at the right time is really important. And many of the technologies around about remote sensing, satellites, drones, we can see this happening. If you get into a modern combine harvester, it's a bit like the uh, flight deck of the Starship Enterprise these days. I think there's some really interesting work going on there, even in developing countries where when they cannot, at least at the moment, afford many of this technology. Some of the things around information coming over mobile phones I get a better signal in my field site in um, Kenya than I do where I live south of Oxford. Uh, it's really exciting what, what's happening. Finally, what will be the key to ensuring that a future food crisis is averted? The challenge is so great and the risk of getting it wrong is so great that it's not really a question of saying, well, should we... Should we concentrate on reducing consumption? Should we concentrate on increasing uh, production? Should we attack waste? Should we think of the governance of the food system? Uh, we should do all, and we should do them actively, and we should do them in the knowledge we've got challenges ahead. So in some sense, I think it's quite simple. We should just make as much progress we can on all fronts. And, you know, it's funny, we put massive amounts of money into defence, rightly because we're worried about existential threats from being invaded by foreign countries. Well, this is another area where we really need to think about uh, existential issues. So when we scan the horizons to look ahead and see the dangers which humanity might be encountering when it comes to the stuff we put in our mouths, well, Charles has a couple of serious concerns and you can see what they are. One is the way that we currently buy and move food around the world. Africa's megacities, for example, places like Lagos and Kinshasa, which are home to tens of millions of people, they currently rely very heavily on international commodity markets. And Charles would like these to be stress-tested, a bit like banks, to ensure that there aren't vulnerabilities which could lead to catastrophic consequences down the line. One way, of course, of ensuring food security is to grow more yourself, and we'll have to see whether Africa can manage that. And secondly, water, which by its nature is abundant in some places, but not in others. That's a resource which many people already say is leading to conflict today. This is a real danger if we don't begin seriously to look at globally managing supplies more efficiently and governing access to water more effectively. However, Charles does point to what he calls good news for the demographic Malthusians among us. He reckons that global population growth is already slowing down and indeed will stabilise. And by combining tech with proactive governance, Charles feels there's every reason to be optimistic that the food challenges of the future can be met. 
Well, that's it for this episode. And if this is your first listen to the Tech Intelligence Podcast, check out our other episodes where we explore the future of money, cars, work, health, and the home. And finally, if technology is your thing, you can hear a daily update on the latest technology news from The Telegraph by searching for Telegraph Technology on any Amazon or Google device. Goodbye. Goodbye.